I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 27. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, and they laid it on both of their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless us this morning as we spend time in a difficult passage. I pray that you would bless us, that you would help us to see the significance, why you would include this in your scripture. I pray that you bless me as I preach. Please give me your words. Protect me from error so that we will know your word better and that we will have hope in a fallen world. I pray that you bless this time. In Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if you've ever done a Bible reading plan that starts you in Genesis, you may be going through the creation account and everything's going well in your reading, and then occasionally you hit genealogies or different things in the Bible and you check out, maybe, as you're reading through the Bible. There's some portions of the narrative that grab you and you seem to understand, and there are other portions when you're reading, you can't wait to get through it and you want to get to the next thing. That happens when you're reading the Bible, often because we don't understand the things that we're reading in the Bible. This is one of those passages when you're reading, everything before it seems to make sense, and you get to this passage and you say, well, that was weird, and then you keep going, and you don't dwell on it too long because it was such a, it just feels like it comes out of nowhere. And so this passage, a few years ago at school, I decided to study a little bit more uh, in, a, in the first preaching class that I took because I thought I had an entire semester to work on a sermon and that we would work on aspects of that sermon each week. So I picked the hardest text that I could find, which was this one, and, and I had to preach in a few weeks. It, it, the class was not laid out the way I thought it was, and I was desperately pr- praying to the Lord, how do I preach this text? I've committed to this text, and I have no idea what I would possibly have to preach from this text. But the more time I spent in this text, the Lord did bless the study, and I fell in love with a really strange text, which is a great encouragement because there are so many hard texts in the Bible that you don't know why they're there. There's only 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. That sounds like a lot of chapters, 50 chapters, but it spans a few millennia. So this is a lengthy period of time, 50 chapters, 
and this very strange little story lands in it. But let's think about this story and where it falls in Scripture, because that's important. So we're in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 1, you have the creation. Genesis chapter 2, you kind of zoom in now on the creation of man. Genesis chapter 3, you get the fall of man, the curse. And then, and then the next few chapters, you, you sort of have of genealogy. You're, you're, you're seeing generation after generation that ultimately leads up to Noah. It leads up to the flood. And why is this significant? What happens in those first few chapters? Well, in the Genesis chapter 3, very significant chapter, right? We have the fall there. But we also have this curse in, that enters the world. We also have the promise of one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so this, this seed of the woman, is promised in Genesis 3. Now you keep seeing new people pop up. Is this going to be the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent? When Noah's born, his father thinks that Noah's going to bring an end to the curse. And we'll get to that text in a little bit in the sermon. And his father even names him Rest. We know, looking back, that Christ is the promised seed of the woman. I'm kind of telling you the end of the story before we even get there, just to get this in your head as we go through the sermon. We know that Christ is the seed of the woman. We know that Christ is the rest that Noah's father wanted him to be. Do you see this? That Christ is the one that we look to. So when we get to the text and we see this generation of people that are on the earth after it's been flooded, after it's been flooded because of sin, God's judgment has been dispensed across the entire world, yet this family is spared. However, there's still sin on the earth, and we see that. So the sermon title this morning is Hope or Restoration in a Fallen World. That's what we're thinking about. Christ is our hope and our restoration in a fallen world. We see very clearly in our text this morning that it is not Noah. Noah and his family, they're rescued from wrath, but they still live in a fallen world. And we, too, are rescued from wrath, living in a fallen world. And how do you respond to sin when you encounter it in this fallen world? You're going to find sin in your own family. You're going to find sin at your workplace. You're going to find sin even here in the church. How do we respond to sin? Each day you're going to encounter wickedness, and we're going to be challenged to navigate these situations with wisdom from the Lord. He equips us as we live on this earth, and we'll, we'll consider that as we go through this sermon. So there's three points. I did not include an outline in the sermon because I really wanted you to engage your brain with these points a little bit. I know if I have the outline, sometimes I let the outline do the work, but I kind of want you to be making this outline as we go this morning. And so as a child of promise, remember that you have hope in a sinful world because you know your rescuer from sin. You know your response to sin you also know your reward, which is unspoiled by sin. So I'll go through those again once more, and then we'll go into those in more depth. Your rescuer from sin, your response to sin, and your reward, which is unspoiled by sin. 
Let's look again at the text as we consider who our rescuer is from sin. Genesis 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So that's Noah. This is the leader of the families of all the earth at this point. And what, what do we see? We see a fall here. Uh, one of the things, we really don't have time to go through all of the parallels between Noah and Adam in this text, but there are a great deal of, of parallels here. This is a very theologically rich passage, but I don't want you to just study this for its theological richness because it's also filled with application for our lives as we are rescued people, yet we still are navigating a sinful world. And so we have that promise of rescue I've already mentioned in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we're seeing here now that Noah is falling short. He is like the first Adam. He has... He has the same commission from the Lord to plant and fill the earth again. Except for Noah is now doing this with hindsight. That's something Adam did not have. He knows how the earth was before, and now he is starting over. Yet we see in our text that we just read that he is already lacking self-control as he lays drunk. And so what does he do? He drinks of the fruit of his vineyard. Adam eats of the fruit and falls. Noah drinks of the vine and falls. Another parallel between the two. Both men, given dominions to work in their gardens, both fall from the fruit of the garden. They both now endure shame and nakedness. Adam and Eve, what happens with their sin? Their shame, and and it's illustrated through their nakedness. Same thing with Noah. It's the same thing. Both need someone to provide a covering for them. Do you see these parallels? They're they're flooded through this passage. Noah is a, a second Adam, but he's not the second Adam that Christ is. Do you see that? Know who your rescuer is. It's not Noah. If you were to turn back to Genesis 5, I mentioned this briefly earlier, Noah's father is anticipating rest through Noah. Genesis 5, verses 28 through 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, which means rest, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. What is he describing there? He's describing the curse of sin. He's saying, From Noah, we're going to have relief from the curse of sin. But who is it that brings us relief from the curse of sin? It's not the first Adam, obviously. Uh, He brings the curse. It's not Noah, a new type of Adam. Nope, not Noah. But it's a different type of Adam. 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 15, For all die in Adam. But also, in Christ, all shall be made alive. And Romans 5 tells us that Christ is a type of Adam, or Adam is a type of the one to come, of Christ. He's the better Adam, and that's why we must know our rescuer. He's unique from any other 
figure, any other leader that you may look up to or you may put your hope into, right? Everyone else fails, but our rescuer does not fail. He's the perfect rescuer. He gives us hope in a fallen world. We've seen many falls from grace within the Christian world in the last several years. And many people use those as excuses to walk away from the faith as they see fallen people acting like fallen people. They were never Christ. As a rescued person on this earth, you will fail. You will fall short. If we set our hopes on any person other than Christ, we will be disappointed. And we will not have hope in a fallen world. So we must know who it is that is our rescuer. Jesus is the conqueror of the servant. It is Jesus who calls you into his kingdom. It is Jesus who grants you an eternal inheritance. And we'll come back to that when we consider the last point, which is reward. But before we get there, let's consider our response to sin. How do we live in a fallen world? Who who do we hope in? We hope in the rescuer, the one true Christ. But how do we respond to sin in a fallen world? Because we will encounter sin on a daily basis, even though we are rescued. Deuteronomy chapter 22 tells us that we care for lost livestock. When we, this is going to make sense in a minute. Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 22 tells us to care for lost livestock when you find it. Bring it into your home. Care for it if you can't get it back to the person. If you find an ox in a ditch, pull it out of the ditch. Care for it. If the Lord cares that much about those types of things, if he cares about animals lost in a ditch, how much more does he care about a father's lost dignity like we have in the passage? Let's read once again. Let's read verses. This is Genesis chapter 9 once again, verses 22 and 23. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it down on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So let's take a moment and just consider this in light of what I mentioned from Deuteronomy. If the Lord cares about your neighbor's animal, and restoring that animal. We don't leave people in an unrestored manner. People are more valuable than an ox in a ditch. And we're also taught in Scripture to honor our fathers, right? And this is the situation here. We have a father who needs his son's help. He needs his son to honor him in that moment. But what does Ham do? Ham leaves him. As he is, he looks in on his father's failure, leaves him there, and then goes out and tells his brothers. It seems as if he's maybe mocking the father, dishonoring the father's situation, not taking seriously the situation maybe. It doesn't tell us. It moves very quickly through the passage. We don't have those details. We do know scripture tells us to honor our father and our mother. We do know that the father was in a shameful state and needed help. But Ham seems to enjoy the failure of his father. 
And that's such a subtle sin that we could all fall prey to. Do we enjoy the failures of others? Do we gossip about the failures of others? Enjoy drama. You know the tabloids at the grocery store, at the cashier? They make millions off of that sinful desire in us. We love failure, and we relish in it. But that is not the fruit of the Spirit. That is the fruit, not fruit, but that is the works of the flesh from Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit, we know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What you see Shem and Japheth do, they are exhibiting these fruit as they take care of their father. Let's look once again at this passage, verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, and they laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered, covered the nakedness of their father. Consider what they do here. When they hear the situation that their father's in, they don't leave him there. But they, they come up with a plan, and this plan is such that they don't get sucked into any sin themselves, and that they're able to honor their father in the process. So they put a coat or whatever it was, some type of garment, one on one shoulder, one on the other brother's shoulder, and they walk backwards until they get to their father, maybe feeling the edge of his bed to, with their feet. I don't know how they get to him, but they get there without looking. And they lay it across him, and they restore his dignity because they love their father. And so what we see here is godly action. And we see them do this respectfully, we see them do it responsibly as they restore their father. Electricians know that their work is serious, so they take precautions when they work, right? They don't just r- run into a situation with live wires, but they, they do what needs to be done to not get electrocuted. Doctors do the same things. As they're helping sick people, they take the precautions they need to not get sick themselves. And that's what we see here as Shem and Japheth come in and restore their father. They're careful to not sin themselves. Think about Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, which is what these brothers are doing. They're restoring their father in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What these brothers are doing, Shem and Japheth, they are fulfilling the law of Christ as they love their father. As they cover their father's shame, they are serving the Lord. They are loving as the Lord does. They are covering someone who is exposed just as the Lord does for Adam and Eve. That is the heart of the Lord. But we must pray for wisdom and grace as we interact in a fallen world because it is messy. It is difficult. We can, with good intentions, often find ourselves in over our heads. We can find ourselves sucked into sinful situations that we really have no business being in. So it takes wisdom as we address things in a fallen world. Sin creeps in subtly, waiting for an opportunity to devour us. And so we must be must be wise as we respond to a sinful world. And the last point I want us to look at 
is as we know our rescuer and we hope in that rescuer, as we respond to sin wisely and in a godly manner, in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, we also consider our reward. Look at the blessings and the curses in our text. In verses 25 and 20, 20, we'll just just read 25 right now. And he said, this is Noah, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. So the first thing we see here is a curse of Canaan. Notice he doesn't say cursed be Ham. He says cursed be Canaan here. Uh, I, I think that's significant when you consider the audience that this is originally being given to. They are about to inherit the land of Canaan. And so that's going to catch the ears of the Israelite that's hearing this, um, that this curse actually, in the years down the road, will actually bless the Israelites with the land of Canaan. Um, And we'll see that those nations in that surrounding area, you would see them in the next chapter, the nations that descend from Noah. As you trace them through these different families, we see that this curse has long-lasting effects. And so this curse goes all the way to the Israelites inheriting the land of Canaan. It's not because they're good people and the Lord just wants to give them Canaan. Part of this is this curse that goes way back to, to this moment. But then we also have these blessings. And he said, Blessed be the Lord the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may, Japh, may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the, twins, the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. There's a lot of theological gold you can mine here and try to, to, to get out of this. We don't have time for all of that this morning. But there's a few things I want us to see in this blessing. First off, he says, blessed be the Lord. The blessing starts with praising the Lord for what has happened. Noah says, praise be the God of Shem, because Shem is an image of godly actions here. He's associating Shem with the Lord in this blessing. He says, praise be the Lord, the God of Shem, or blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So now we're starting to see how this inheritance that the Israelites will get, where it comes from. They are descendants of Shem. So as they are walking into the land of Canaan, as they are enjoying this reward from the Lord, they're seeing that it's completely grace, and it goes back to this old blessing here. And may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Blessed be the Lord, your God. Blessed Blessed are you in the name of the Lord. That's what we need to consider. As we consider our reward, the reward that we receive is not due to our good works, but they're due to the works of Christ. Blessed be the Lord, your God, and yet you receive his blessings. We are heirs with Christ. We are receiving Christ's blessings. Scripture constantly lays this reward out in front of us as something that we should hope in, endure in, as we are in this fallen world where we do not yet fully inherit this promised land. Remember, Canaan, the promised land. We are also waiting on a promised land. 
A few weeks ago, as we were studying in Matthew, Adam pointed out, we don't know what to do with reward because we have a worldly association with this concept of reward. But the Bible is constantly telling us, hold on to the rewards that the Lord is giving you. Hope in the Lord's rewards. This is a good thing to do. This is what Christ himself does. Hebrews 12, um, who for the joy set before him, that's Christ, endures the cross. What is he doing? He's thinking about reward. He's thinking about the good that is coming later. And we are to model after that. We do the same. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. We are taught to follow that example in scripture. Our life now is hard. And we're told that our reward is much better. So we hope in that. We don't place our hope in the daily bread that we require of the Lord. We place place our hope in his kingdom come. That part of the Lord's prayer. That is what we're placing our hope in. Daily bread is just the sustenance to get you there. But we often are preoccupied with our daily bread. That's where we find our security. That's where we place our hope, but it's not where we are supposed to place our hope. So this morning, I hope that we can see that these curses curses and these blessings here point us to remember the Lord's blessings that are to come in the future, future blessings. We enjoy present blessings, and we are encouraged as we endure, but it's those future blessings that we are constantly in the scripture reminded to fix our eyes on so that we can walk and navigate the challenges of a sinful world. Consider these verses from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, we will know riches that we cannot imagine. We will know riches that we have never tasted. And that is the hope that we have set before us. As we still, every day, will have things that beat us down, things that will lead us to want to, to tempt us to be depressed because we see things. We see things getting worse in this world. But we're, what we're told in Scripture is that it will be better, that it will be better. And so we cling to Christ and his blessed inheritance. Christ, who justifies us by faith, We receive his reward, not ours. And he leads us by the Spirit so that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit as we interact in this sinful world. I want to close with this illustration. I've used this illustration, I think, about a year ago or maybe more. Uh, Years ago, I went to Ripley's Believe It or Not, and there was was an exhibit that was designed to make you kind of fall over, even though you're just walking on solid ground. There was like sensory things going on, swirling around you. 
and it is designed to disorient you as, as you walk through the tunnel. And there was a line to get into the tunnel. So I had a little time on the outside, and I'm staring at this exhibit, and I'm watching these people, and I know that the room hasn't changed, but they're all leaning, they're all falling over, and they look silly. You know, so I'm thinking, what can I do to not fall over when I walk through this tunnel? That's not, so I'm studying them, and I'm saying, okay, it's, the, it's what's going on around them that's making them lean. The ground hasn't changed. So I can see it from the outside looking in. The ground hasn't changed. So how do I, when I go through this tunnel, how can I not, not do what they're doing? How can I stay upright on my feet? And then I realized at the end of the tunnel, you could see an opening. And so when I walked through the tunnel, I just stared at that opening. And none of the things swirling around me impacted me. I was able to go, go through it. I stood just perfectly normal and walked through it. And it's because I had I'd locked on to an anchor point at the end. And that is exactly what Hebrews 12 is telling us to do. As we run in endurance in this world that is still fallen. Remember, in Genesis chapter 9, the rainbow, right before the passage we had this morning, we're given a promise that the Lord won't flood the earth again. And why is that? Because people are continuously sinful. We're going to constantly encounter sin. But we must fix our eyes on Jesus. He is our anchor point. Even though all of these things around us are swirling, and they are pushing us to the side this way or that way, when we fixate on Christ and his reward, we realize that he is firm. We realize that he is the cornerstone that is holding it all together, and we are able to stay upright and keep moving through this earth. So I encourage you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Know your rescuer. As you endure in a sinful world, you have hope because you know your rescuer. And know your response to sin. Live a life in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit. It's amazing how comprehensive that list is. Peace, joy, gentleness. Look how the brothers, they deal with their father. He's in a sinful situation They deal with it, but they deal with it with gentleness and self-control. So we bear the fruit of the Spirit as we deal with sin in this world. And remember your reward. It's a good thing. The Lord reminds us on purpose to think of those good things, those riches. It's not a sinful thing to long for reward. The Lord encourages you to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you give us all that we need on this earth, that you give us everything. Through your spirit, you give us these things. Father, we confess that we will struggle. We confess that we do not always lean on our rescuer, but we find other strengths in this world that fail us. Help us to remember that it is only Christ who is strong enough for us. Father, help us to remember as we deal with a sinful world what your will is for us, how we are to interact with this sinful world. And please encourage us, remind us of the goodness that lays ahead, that we would pray your kingdom come, that we would want to see your kingdom come because we believe that your kingdom is better than what we are currently experiencing. Father, let us lay our hope where you have taught us to in your scripture. In Christ we pray. Amen.